Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Inside the Board's Step 1 Study Smarter series. My name is Alex Carter, and I'll be concluding my tour of the kidneys today with part two of our Step 1 Renal Review. In this episode, we'll review some practice questions, a bit of pathophysiology that might be tested, and we'll end with a rapid-fire review of common buzzwords and their associations. So let's get to it. We'll start the review with a quick series of pharmacology questions, and then move on to some more general pathology. So to break the seal, if you will, let's talk some diuretics. Our first interrogatory is, which of the following is the most likely cause of hearing impairment? And the question A 50-year-old male with a history of congestive heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, coronary artery disease, hypertension, dyslipidemia, chronic kidney disease, presents to the physician's clinic with complaints of decreased hearing in both ears for the past four weeks. The patient denies any history of ear infection, trauma to the ear, ear fullness, nausea, headache, or tinnitus. Patient also mentions that two months ago he was admitted with septic shock secondary to a UTI and was treated with broad spectrum antibiotics, including gentamicin and cefepime. Currently, he takes aspirin, metoprolol, atorvastatin, lisinopril, and furosemide at home. He has had no medication changes in the last six months. Which of the following is the most likely cause of hearing impairment? A. Furosemide alone. B. Aspirin alone, C. Gentamicin alone, or D. Gentamicin and furosemide. And the correct answer here, D. Gentamicin and furosemide. So what happened here to cause these hearing difficulties in this patient? Well, unfortunately, he was exposed to the perfect storm of medications and underlying health conditions to cause damage to his inner ear. For one, this patient is taking, or has recently taken, three medications that are known to be ototoxic, and that is furosemide, aspirin, and gentamicin. Second, the side effect of ototoxicity is known to be worse in patients with chronic kidney disease, like the patient in this vignette. And finally, the co-treatment with any two medications that can cause ototoxicity can have a synergistic effect causing the symptoms to appear at doses that might not normally affect an otherwise healthy patient. So in this case, answers A, B, and C all attributed his hearing loss to a single medication, but option D hits on this notion of drug-drug interactions and their potential to cause side effects even at lower doses, or even at doses to which the patient has been exposed for a long time. Now before moving on, let's touch on just a couple other small points about ototoxicity. So this side effect typically does not occur rapidly, and as we saw in this case, the patient took the gentamicin two months ago and didn't start experiencing symptoms until about a month afterward. Second, uh, ototoxicity is often associated with nephrotoxicity as well. So if you can remember that a drug has the potential to cause renal damage, usually by inducing acute tubular necrosis, then there's a reasonable chance that it will be ototoxic as well. A few examples of medications that fall into both the nephrotoxic and ototoxic camp include vancomycin, 
cisplatin, quinine, and amphotericin B, affectionately known as amphoterrible for its many side effects. So the takeaway from this question, if you have a patient with long-standing kidney disease, but you really need to take some of the fluid off of them, if you want to preserve their hearing, I suggest that you proceed with caution before blasting them full of furosemide or Lasix. You hear me? All right, bad joke, check, time to move on. Our next interrogatory. A diuretic with which of the following mechanisms of action should be prescribed? And the question? A 65-year-old male with a chronic history of alcohol abuse and hepatitis C presents mildly confused. Additionally, he presents in a fluid overloaded state. His vital signs are stable. His lab work is notable for a serum potassium of 2.7, which I'll just tell you is low. A right upper quadrant ultrasound was performed and showed a fatty fibrotic pattern with atrophy of the liver and a nodular contour. A diuretic with which of the following mechanisms of action should be prescribed? A. Intracellular enzyme inhibitor. B. Intranuclear steroid receptor. C. Luminal triple ion transporter. Or D. Luminal dual ion transporter. So before I give the answer, let me review in summary. We have a patient who has cirrhosis, as confirmed by that imaging, and a low potassium who needs to have some fluid removed because he's coming in in a fluid overloaded state. So what is the drug that the question is suggesting that we turn to at this point? Well, the most appropriate medication would likely be spironolactone or aplerinone, one of the potassium sparing diuretics. Knowing this, the interrogatory becomes, what is the target or signaling mechanism of aldosterone antagonists, such as spironolactone or aplerinone? And the correct answer is B, intranuclear steroid receptor. Before talking more about these potassium sparing diuretics, Let's rule out some of these distractors. A says intracellular enzyme inhibitor. Which diuretic uses intracellular enzyme inhibition as part of its mechanism of action? Acetazolamide, which inhibits the intracellular enzyme carbonic anhydrase, predominantly in the proximal tubules. This is not an especially potent diuretic medication and would not be appropriate in this patient with edema, cirrhosis, and hypokalemia. Answer C describes a luminal triple ion transporter, which is referring to the loop diuretics like furosemide or torsemide. This drug class antagonizes the sodium-potassium-2 chloride transporter, which can cause many electrolyte shifts, including hypokalemia which would be very dangerous in this patient whose potassium is already low at 2.7. Since these drugs are so effective at causing diuresis, however, they are still sometimes prescribed in patients with hypokalemia when combined with a drug like spironolactone, which can help offset the effects on potassium. And finally, answer D describes a luminal dual ion transporter. What diuretic is this referring to? That would be the thiazide diuretics, such as hydrochlorothiazide, chlorthalidone, or metolazone. These antagonize the sodium chloride co-transporter in the distal convoluted tubule, and, like the loop diuretics, can cause many electrolyte shifts, including hypokalemia. So back to the correct answer to our question. 
How do spironolactone and aplerinone, the aldosterone antagonists, work? They are both competitive antagonists of aldosterone. At this point, you could memorize how these drugs signal, or you could consider that if they competitively antagonize aldosterone, they must bind to the same receptor as aldosterone. What type of molecule is aldosterone? Well, we know it's synthesized in the zona glomerulosa of the adrenal cortex, so it therefore must be a steroid hormone. And how do steroid hormones signal? They bind to receptors inside the nucleus of their target cells, which again is why the correct answer is B, intranuclear steroid receptor. So lastly, before we move on, let's review the mechanism of aldosterone to better understand why blocking this steroid hormone would induce diuresis. As I mentioned earlier, aldosterone is secreted by cells in the zona glomerulosa of the adrenal cortex. Those cells are regulated primarily by potassium and angiotensin II. So aldosterone secretion is primarily regulated by angiotensin II levels. Angiotensin II has many effects in the body, but in general, it is the action of raising blood pressure. And it accomplishes this in many ways, one of which is to increase the total volume of blood in circulation. This is where aldosterone comes in. Angiotensin recruits aldosterone to reabsorb salt and water, which adds volume to the blood. Aldosterone acts in the kidneys on the principal and the alpha intercalated cells of the collecting duct to promote the retention of sodium and the excretion of potassium into the urine. So where sodium goes, water follows, especially when there are more aquaporins present thanks to another hormone called ADH. You can remember then that aldosterone causes sodium retention, which causes water absorption, which raises blood volume. In the interest of time, and because I think it's a somewhat visual pathway, I won't go any further into the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone pathway right now, but if there were a single quote-unquote high-yield feedback loop to learn in the area of renal physiology, I think the RAS pathway would be that. Uh, Learning just how the RAS pathway is involved in blood volume and pressure regulation uh, really crosses multiple organ systems and is very testable, um, includes pharmacology and pathology, and I think it's a a good way to really assess uh, how well you're integrating all of the organ systems into your studying at the same time. And with that, we're on to our final pharmacology question of the day. The interrogatory is, which of the following is the most likely cause? And the question A 50-year-old female presented to the clinic for evaluation of bilateral ankle edema present for the past one month. No other complaints are reported. The patient has a history of hypertension treated with amlodipine and furosemide. On exam, bilateral lower extremity edema is evident with no rash or cellulitis. The rest of the exam is benign with no signs of cardiac failure or venous stasis. Her lab work shows BUN of 41, serum creatinine of 2. A urinalysis shows high white blood cell count with eosinophils, but no protein, no red blood cells, no glucose, and no bacteria. And finally, a renal biopsy was performed, which showed edema as well as eosinophils and lymphocytes in the interstitium of the tubules. Which of the following is the most likely cause? 
A. Furosemide B. Long-term uncontrolled hypertension C. Oral contraceptive pills D. Nephrotic syndrome The correct answer is A. Furosemide For those of you keeping score at home, yes, that is the second time furosemide was a correct answer today. To be fair, this is somewhat uh, due to chance, but it also speaks to the prevalence of furosemide use as well as its wide side effect profile. So this question had a lot of background information, so it might be helpful to look at some of the more pertinent positives. We have a middle-aged woman who is presenting with new-onset edema, an acutely elevated BUN and creatinine, and a urinalysis that shows eosinophils but is otherwise unremarkable. She also had a biopsy which showed evidence of interstitial inflammation and edema. So what renal condition is this whole vignette alluding to? Well, if you said acute interstitial nephritis, you are correct. So let's then answer the original question. What is the most likely cause of acute interstitial nephritis in this patient? Furosemide, long-term uncontrolled hypertension, oral contraceptive pills, or nephrotic syndrome? Well, all of these answer choices could cause damage to the kidneys in some form, but furosemide is the only one that triggers the specific immunologic response that characterizes acute interstitial nephritis. So what is acute interstitial nephritis? This term describes a basic pattern of renal injury associated with an abrupt decline in kidney function, which is characterized histopathologically by inflammation and edema in the renal interstitium. Far and away, the most common cause of AIN is drug hypersensitivity. A lot of medications can cause this, but the far and away most common are the beta-lactam antibiotics and NSAIDs as well. But other medications, including diuretics like furosemide in this question, sulfonamides, proton pump inhibitors, and rifampin can cause this condition. Less commonly, autoimmune conditions such as lupus or sarcoidosis or other types of systemic infections can also cause AIN. So how do we treat AIN? Well, if it's drug-induced, such as in our patient, the answer is just what you think it is. Stop giving them that medication. Usually the prognosis for this condition is fairly good, with about three-quarters of patients returning to their baseline function within six weeks. Finally, uh, just a few tangentially related other pearls for your test. Do you remember the classic presentation of a drug-induced hypersensitivity reaction? It's a throwback to that mnemonic dress. The classic triad is fever, rash, and eosinophilia. And then lastly, another way you could see acute interstitial nephritis coming up on your test is in renal transplant recipients. If they mention that a transplant is starting to show signs of rejection, and on histopathology, you see signs of edema and inflammation in the interstitium. Well, then you think AIN because it's a pretty specific finding. If you're really lucky, they might even tell you that the patient has some eosinophilia on their urinalysis, which would also definitely give away that they're looking at AIN as the condition of choice. So I think that's enough farm for the day. Let's work on a little bit of pathology. And we'll start up with just a warm-up question before getting uh, a little farther into the weeds, or maybe if you prefer the tubules. So our next interrogatory is, 
What substance is most likely causing the effect on the urine? And the question? A mother complains that her three-year-old son has been having frothy urine for the past week. She denies any trauma or medical problems. He has had an uneventful growth pattern. Examination of the urine reveals a white froth. What substance is most likely causing this effect on the urine? A. Ethylene glycol B. Protein C. Bilirubin or D. Lipids And the correct answer here is B. Protein So running through the distractors quickly, A is ethylene glycol. Now this serves as a nice opportunity for some spaced repetition for those of you who listened to part one of this renal review series. What would we expect to find in the urine of someone who ingested ethylene glycol or antifreeze? We'd expect to see calcium oxalate stones, which are the same things you'd see in people suffering from any kidney stone. Uh, the next distractor was C, bilirubin. Now what would this look like in the urine? Well, we'd expect to see dark yellow, maybe even almost orange urine. Remember that normal urine has very little bilirubin. Uh, instead, it gets its color from the soluble urobilinogen. If you see bilirubin in the urine, uh, you have to start considering that maybe the bile duct is obstructed or there, or there might be some other cause of a uh, direct or conjugated hyperbilirubinemia. The final distractor is D, lipids. And this would look more oily or possibly even milky white in appearance. You might also expect to see fatty casts, which have the characteristic Maltese cross sign on microscopy. So in this case, we've identified that the child is losing protein in his urine. The next question is, what condition is he most likely suffering from? Well, most likely, minimal change disease. This is the most common nephrotic syndrome in children, and it will often present in your test as a child who has had a recent infection and is now noticing significant edema or frothy urine. Pathophysiologically, this condition is caused by damage to the podocytes which surround the glomerular basement membrane. Without this seal around the glomerulus, protein essentially leaks out, causing that edema and the urine to become frothy, as we talked about earlier. Other than having a recent infection, the most common association with minimal change disease for your test would be blood cancers. So consider working up for leukemia or lymphoma if the patient is also experiencing symptoms like weight loss, fever, or other constitutional findings. If you were to get a biopsy of a patient with minimal change disease, we'd expect to see normal glomerular architecture on light microscopy and nothing of note on immunofluorescence since no antibodies or immune complexes are involved in this condition. So the only major finding of note would come from electron microscopy, which would show, quote-unquote, effacements of the photocyte foot processes. Now how do we treat people with minimal change disease? Fortunately, it's very responsive to steroids. So if I had presented this case simply as a child coming in with protein in his urine after having a recent infection, but no other details than that, what other pathologies might you be considering? Well, in addition to the nephrotic syndrome, minimal change disease, I hope you'd also be considering two of the nephritic syndromes, post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis or IgA nephropathy. Since both of these conditions are nephritic and not nephrotic, You'd expect to see less protein and more red blood cell casts and maybe even some blood in the urine, as well as 
a mention and probably of some hypertension as compared to minimal change disease in which the presenting chief complaint will most likely be edema or swelling. And if you're really fixing for a more in-depth review of post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis as well as IgA nephropathy, tune into part one of this renal review step one series. So if that question was a little too easy for you, here's a bit of a trickier one. The interrogatory is, what is the most likely cause of her kidney disease? And the question, a 31-year-old female with a history of HIV presents with lower extremity swelling and chronic back pain. Her medications include highly active antiretroviral therapy, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, aspirin, ibuprofen, and codeine. Her blood pressure is 180 over 110, and she has 3-plus pitting edema of both lower extremities. Lab values include a creatinine of 2.0, albumin of 1.6, urinalysis that shows 4-plus protein, and 10 red blood cells per hive-powered field. A 24-hour urine protein showed 6.5 grams of protein. What is the most likely cause of her kidney disease? A. Opioid use disorder. B. Toxicity from highly active antiretroviral therapy. C. Focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. Or D. Hypertensive renal disease. And the correct answer here is C. Focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. Before moving more into FSGS, as I will refer to it from here on out, let's rule out the distractors. A is opioid use disorder. Now, opioids are not known to cause renal damage, even with chronic use. However, in patients with chronic kidney disease, certain opioids such as morphine, codeine, and tramadol can accumulate to toxic levels in the blood, so they should be avoided or severely dose-reduced when used in any patient with a history of chronic kidney disease. Next, we have option B, which was toxicity from her HIV therapy. This is definitely possible since some of the antiretroviral medications are nephrotoxic, most notably tenofovir or some of the protease inhibitors in particular. However, if her current issue were caused by her highly active antiretroviral therapy, we would expect to find more signs of acute kidney injury, such as low urine output, rather than this patient's constellation of symptoms, which are more consistent with a nephrotic syndrome type of picture. And then finally, we have choice D, hypertensive renal disease, also known as renovascular hypertension. This is referring to a narrowing of the vessels that perfuse the kidneys, typically by a condition such as renal artery stenosis or fibromuscular dysplasia. Renal vascular hypertension would not cause a full-blown nephrotic syndrome like this woman is suffering from. Instead, a patient might present with drug-resistant hypertension and maybe some generic waxy casts on their urine sediment if they were suffering from hypertensive renal disease. So again, the correct answer here was focal segmental glomerular sclerosis, or FSGS. Now what is this condition, and how did she acquire it? Well, if there were only one single glomerular pathology to learn for your exam, sorry to be the bearer of bad news, by the way, but you should probably learn all of the glomerular pathologies, 
I would recommend that that single condition be FSGS. Now, why is that? Well, mostly because it's the most prevalent nephrotic condition in the U.S. It's also the most common cause of end-stage renal disease among the nephrotic syndromes. Now, FSGS can be primary, which would be like a genetic issue or an idiopathic cause, or it could be secondary to infection, drug toxicity, or other systemic conditions that can cause glomerular damage. Pathophysiologically, it's very similar to minimal change disease, which we just talked about. Electron microscopy will show podocyte uh, effacements, much like minimal change disease, and light microscopy will show some regions of sclerosis or hyalinosis in the glomerulus. Immunofluorescence is usually negative, but it might include some nonspecific findings of some C3, which complement, or IgM antibodies. Like most glomerular pathologies, the gold standard for diagnosis is biopsy, with histology confirming those damage to the podocytes. However, you can also be tipped off to FSGS by some labs that show nephrotic syndrome in combination with some aspect of the patient's history that would point you towards FSGS. So what are some of these unique historical figures that would raise your suspicion for FSGS? Well, viral infections are a very common cause. So you might expect to see a patient with a history of HIV or hep C infection, but parvovirus, Epstein-Barr virus, and cytomegalovirus can all cause it too. So in our patient here, she has a history of HIV, which puts her at higher risk of FSGS at baseline. Drug exposures are another historical feature to look out for. In particular, the test often likes to draw on the association between heroin abuse and FSGS, though anabolic steroids and interferon gamma are two other medications that are sometimes also associated with FSGS on tests. And then lastly, the patient population to consider for FSGS, uh, as I mentioned, uh, Americans, or the most common nephrotic syndrome in Americans, but then specifically the African-American population, as well as Hispanics, tend to suffer from FSGS at slightly higher rates. So the final thing to mention about FSGS is how do we treat it? Well, it's the same as minimal, minimal change disease, steroids, that is, or other immunosuppression if this fails. Unfortunately, FSGS is a little less responsive to steroids than minimal change disease, which is why it's not uncommon to see people with FSGS progress to end-stage renal disease. And with that, we have completed our questions portion of the podcast. So let's move on to our final section. So since this will be my last renal review episode, I'd like to end this episode by cramming a bit of quick review, rapid pathology recognition. So this will test mostly your recall as opposed to more critical problem-solving skills. Maybe consider returning to this episode or this portion of the episode towards the end of your study period, right very close to your exam, if you want to just make sure that you have a lot of those little details available for quick retrieval or recall on the test. So specifically for this little section, um, I'll list a finding that you might find on a urine dipstick, a urinalysis, or some other type of uh, biopsy. And then I'll give a brief pause, and then I'll just list the associated pathology with that finding. 
and I'm not really going to go into much further explanation just in the interest of time. Sound good? Let's give it a try. Our first finding is ketones. So if you find ketones in the urine, think DKA, starvation, or one of the genetic metabolic syndromes. How about fatty casts or lipids? Think nephrotic syndrome. Muddy brown or granular casts? Think ATN. Could be due to ischemia or toxin exposure. An ATN that is acute tubular necrosis. Epithelial casts? Same thing, ATN. It represents tubular cell necrosis. What about positive esterase? Think bacterial infection. Waxy casts? This is a nonspecific finding, often seen in chronic kidney disease. It's not going to help you too much. Red blood cell casts? Think one of the nephritic syndromes or possibly trauma to the urinary tract. How about positive nitrites? Think similar to the positive esterase, probably a bacterial infection, but this is a little more specific and a little less sensitive than the esterase. So if you see nitrites, it's more likely that there is a bacterial infection present, but not all bacterial infections are going to show a positive nitrite test. What about magnesium ammonium phosphate crystals? These are known as struvite stones caused by urease-positive infections by something like Proteus or Klebsiella. How about calcium oxalate crystals? Think about kidney stones or possibly an overdose or intoxication with ethylene glycol. White blood cell casts? Think inflammation. White blood cell casts are often affiliated with infections like pyelonephritis, or signs of inflammation due to acute interstitial nephritis, as we talked about earlier. How about myoglobin? Well, if you see myoglobin in your end, think rhabdomyolysis. What will a dipstick show in rhabdo? You should see positive for blood. What would a urinalysis show, though? It would be no red blood cells. Again, it's the myoglobin that's triggering the positive dipstick, but the urinalysis will show no actual blood. Lastly, what if you see hyaline casts? Well, this was a mean trick question. They're very nonspecific. They're also referred to as TAM horsefall proteins, so don't let that trip you up if you see it in the test. But if you see hyaline casts or TAM horsefall proteins, it's essentially telling you nothing specific about this patient or condition. And that's it for the rapid association section of this renal review. And that's actually all I have for today's episode. As always, I truly appreciate any feedback you might have. So please reach out to me at alexitbfeedback at gmail.com. And uh, thank you all for listening today. Until next time, this is Alex Carter signing off on another episode of the Step 1 Study Smarter series for Inside the Boards.